welcome to Why It Works, book review edition. If you didn't know already, I'm a self-professed self-help and business book junkie. Through my podcast, I've met many authors who have written or are writing transformational books meant to help you unlock your full potential. I didn't want to shoehorn a book discussion into my standard format. So instead, I'm launching a separate edition of Why It Works, where we go behind the pages explore insights with the author. That said, the goal of the podcast and everything else I do is the same, to uncover the hidden principles behind why things work. I hope you enjoy the show. Why is charisma so elusive? Why is it so hard to define? And why should the benefits of charisma be limited to those few who seem to have been born with it? Wouldn't it be great to be able to unlock your charisma, to get the attention, access, and credit you deserve? I'm so excited to share with you, I've just released my first ebook, Unlock Your Charisma. Drawing on universal principles of connection, I reveal the hidden principles behind why charisma works. You can't get more of something if you don't know what it is. Unlock Your Charisma will show you how to be heard, be valued, and be chosen. Available on Apple Books and Amazon Kindle. Thank you. Welcome to Why It Works Book Review Edition. Here with us today is Stacy Ashley, a high-performance leadership expert who has helped thousands to develop their leadership competence, confidence, and credibility. Together, we're going to explore one of my favorite topics, leadership through the lens of self-leadership as she has revealed in her new book, First Lead Yourself. Welcome, Stacy, to the Why It Works podcast. Thanks so much, Joe. I'm really excited about being here with you again. Awesome. So, yes, you were a guest um, on the Why It Works podcast, and I believe our topic was Leaders Create Leaders. And at the time, this book was forthcoming, and I made you promise you would come back because I wanted to hear more about the book, and here we are together. Now, this is not your first book. What was writing this one like? I think uh, because I've written a book before, I I feel like, of course, you know, I'm an old hand now. No, Um, it was a little easier. Uh, Quite quite a different kind of topic, though. The the first book was incredibly practical and, um, and kind of setting the foundations upon which you then build leadership, whereas this this book is really about getting into the space of the being of leadership, which I think is such an important thing. Um, And and so it was a little different from that perspective, but again, it's been something that's been, you know, percolating in my in my brain for quite some time. So once I get into the book writing space, um, and I do carve out, you know, time and space to to write intensively, um, it just flowed. Yeah, I feel like maybe um, for you, it might have just been more just, you know. Um, putting a structure around it. I imagine everything was coming out, but you have to figure out how to sort of cohesively tie everything together. That's so true. And so probably for me, the the biggest set of decisions was in, in fact, exactly that. How do you structure a book that's got a lot of information and ideas and, you know, and, and strategies that people can take and implement, but structure it in a way that it's actually accessible enough for them to do that really easily. Um, and so trying to present ideas 
that might be complex, but in a really simple way that people feel like, oh, I can take that and use that. Um, and so once I had that structure um, defined, you know, it, it became really easy to actually piece it together. Now, one thing I loved about your book, and, you know, I love leadership and business books, but I'm not a big fan of leadership methodologies. And, and the reason why is more often than not, um, and this is not the case for your book, but more often than not, they get like so complex. It's like we're worshiping at this altar of complexity. And, and you know, and people in the audience know, when something's complex or too complex, it breaks down under pressure. So what I thought was really fantastic about what you did was you took a lot of like really powerful concepts, but as you just mentioned before, you kind of put them in a way that was like workable and still helpful to people um, and in a way they can understand. So I just wanted to say, you know, kudos, you know, it's, it's like Covey does that, Marshall Goldsmith does that, Jim Rohn, like authors like that. I really enjoy their business books because they're able to do that. And I thought you, you did a great job of that, Stacey. Oh, well, thank you. That's, uh, that's fine company to be keeping. Um, it's really important to me that, that what I share can actually be applied. And so I think that that's such an essential thing to be able to, to take the theory and the academia and all of that sort of and, and make it real, you know, and possible. And, and I, I tend to agree with you, Joe. I think there's a lot of amazing information around there about leadership, but there's not a lot of, but how do I do that? You know, like mm -hmm. that sounds great, but how do I do that? And so that's really what I wanted to bring was not just the, this is what to do, but here are some ideas about how to do that. Absolutely. All right. So let's get into some of the topics and, and themes and would love to get your sort of author behind the scenes sort of view of some of these uh, things that stood out to me. So the first thing that really um, early on in the book popped out to me is this whole concept of how real leaders demonstrate leadership by role modeling, not, not by telling you what to do, but like setting that example and, and also folded into that was doing that authentic, authentically, like in a way that really represents who you are. Tell me a little bit about how this sort of concept came to be and, and where you see this in your work or, you know, in your research. Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's, it's, it is such an important thing. Um, role modelling is an incredible um, opportunity, I guess, for other people to see leadership in action. So they can actually look at it and go, that's what leadership actually, that's, look, that's what it looks like. And, and I think that role modelling is just a natural thing. When we're actually being a leader, you, you just you are role modelling leadership right there. So if you're stepping up and and you're learning and growing as a leader and you're showing up every day in your strengths and you're and you're conscious about it, um, then that in itself is you role modelling leadership, and it's actually showing other people how how leadership is is done. And I think we've probably all got one or more stories where we've seen and being in the company of a leader or leaders or people who have a what you know what would be described as a leadership role and they talk a really good talk but they don't necessarily walk a really good walk and <laughs> so there's that disconnect between you know what i say and what i do and so while they may know a lot about leadership and they might talk about it 
they don't necessarily demonstrate it. They're not necessarily being it. And so there's that real disconnect. And it's and as as someone who's, you know, maybe looking to that leader for guidance or inspiration or support, it's like, well, can I really even trust them to do that? Because they're not really showing up as a leader. They they talk about it, but I can't really see them doing it and and being it. And so, you know, there's that then there's that, you know, do I really trust them? And I think we've all had those experiences. And yet when you see a leader in action who's who's living and breathing what they talk about, and in fact, they probably don't have to talk about it as much because they are the, the doing of it, um, then you have that, that greater level of trust that, you know, they are going to support me or they're going to challenge me. But, you know, when they do all those things, they actually do it genuinely, uh, you know, from from a leadership being of wanting you to grow and prosper and be successful as well. And that just shows up in everything they do. So that's, that's them role modeling. And you, so you choose, you choose them to be your role model because that there is that genuine and authentic um, showing and being and doing of leadership. Yeah. One thing um, that really resonates with me about what you were just saying there, Stacey, and you use the word being, like a whole bunch of times. And, and to me, like, you know, that is so important. Like it's, 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 they are already that person inside that type of leader. And then, so their actions kind of naturally flow from it. It's not like I ask you a question and you give me a smart response. It's like, this is who you are. You can't help, but be to use your words or being any other way. And I think that ties into sort of the title and the theme of your book, which is first lead yourself, right? Like if you can't lead yourself and be the leader, that other people want to follow, then you're kind of just fancy talking. It, it doesn't really work. Absolutely. And, and that for me, I guess, is really the crux of it. First lead yourself, be a leader. That's your ticket to the game of being able to lead others. Mm, absolutely. Now, another concept that I really love that you talked about was this concept of your comfort zone and your stretch zone. What did you mean by that? I think... Um, it's very easy for us to to live inside our comfort zone and and as leaders or you know aspiring leaders at all levels if we do that then again we're actually not leading because we always need to be learning and growing and expanding what we have to offer the people that we you know we serve in our leadership and so that growth doesn't happen inside the comfort zone. Growth happens in the stretch zone where we're trying something new or, you know, or taking on new learning and experimenting with it and then integrating that which works, you know, and and helps to elevate our, our leadership even further. If we're not continuously learning, then, you know, again, if we're creating more leaders, if we're being, you know, being leadership and and leadership is about that learning journey and continuing to grow, then we just don't have anything to offer them. We don't deserve to lead. We need to always be expanding, elevating, experimenting, you know, and, and showing others also that, of course, that is a fundamental part of leadership. You cannot just sit in your comfort zone and expect that, you know, you lead or you deserve to lead or that others would choose you to be their leader. Um, I'm, I'm not going to choose someone who's, you know, effectively plateaued and, um, 
you know, just, yeah, in a resting pose. <laughs> you know, I saw a great graphic once in it, and it kind of, I, I thought of it when, when I, I read your um, piece about the comfort zone and the stretch zone, how um, when people are reacting to something that's outside of their comfort zone, they're on one edge, they kind of, um, they kind of uh, close off, right? Like the reaction might to be, you know, to sort of guard themselves because they, they can't, you know, um, be comfortable in that, in that, with that discomfort. And then other people, it's kind of the opposite. They go crazy, right? It's, Mm. it's, it's like they lash out and, and nothing's my fault. And they just go sort of the opposite way. And Mm. what I thought was great about what you were talking about, it reminded me of what I read before was it's that being able to be okay in that zone and, figure things out and work through it without either closing off or or lashing out. That's kind of where the growth happens, if that makes sense. Yeah, look, absolutely. Because we do need to be in a resourceful state to be able to grow. And if we're defensive or protective, or as you say, kind of going into those extreme responses, then we're not really at our most resourced. And so we're not in the best position to grow. But I think that brings up, it's a really important point. I think there's Obviously, we've got our comfort zone where we know we, you know, we can do everything that's in there. We've got our stretch zone, which is our learning opportunity. But then we can go beyond to this kind of panic zone, which is so far beyond what we're familiar with that we, yeah, yeah we don't know how to respond. And, and what I see in organisations is that they actually put people into the panic zone um, because they give them multiple changes at the same time. Uh. And so we're actually creating this situation of panic rather than saying, okay, let's do a step change, a step change, a step change so we can grow through the changes. And then we get, you know, and we expand our our, um, comfort zone because we've continued to learn and grow. But if we, for example, this is, this is a really simple example, but if I, um, if I promote someone into, let's say we promote someone as a leader for the first time and we also promote them into an area that they are not familiar with, so it's a domain they don't know, we've now take, you know, like we've given them two big challenges at the same time. That could be someone's panic zone. So we could either change the domain or give them the promotion. But if we do both at once, potentially we create a panic zone. Mm, Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you want to keep people within that capacity for them to grow as opposed to crumble because it's just too, it's too much. much. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, I think it's such an important thing. And again, if you come back to the self leadership and the and the you know this the decisions that you make for yourself about you know expanding your horizons and going into your stretch zone is really just to think about how much, how quickly. Hmm. Absolutely. Now um, a theme that I saw in your book occurring over and over, it wasn't really a section or a particular, um, you know, concept or methodology was this whole theme of, you know, you are in control, you know, like, like that features itself in across your book in, in many different areas. Talk to us a little about, you know, the importance of that concept or, 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 or that belief that you are in control. Yeah, I think it's it, it probably is an underlying theme in everything that I do because you know that there's that it doesn't matter what the situation is, you always have control of the response. So I guess that's partly where that concept um, or theme comes from. So you always have 
the control of yourself, how you respond, how you show up, um, the decisions that you make, um, you know, where you focus. So you've got that, you know, choices around um, how you self-manage, how you how you direct, you know, self-direct. And, and so I think um, one of the things that's that's most important is that ha- that is exactly the same for your leadership. How you show up as a leader is your choice. How you apply yourself is your choice. How you learn, how you grow, how you role model, how you mentor, how you coach. It's, it's all choices that we make, you know, for ourselves. And you are in control of those um, at all times, regardless of the circumstances, which is not to say everything's perfect, but mm-hmm. whatever the circumstance is, you still have a choice you know, yeah, maybe you got um, a new promotion into a leadership role or you got moved sideways and it wasn't the one that you wanted. You still have the choice about how you show up in that role, how you lead, how you demonstrate leadership, you know, how you build your own confidence in your ability to actually execute in that space or, um, you know, how you work with the people around you. I think that... um, a couple of things for me that I've observed in organizations, sometimes what happens is that because people are operating within an organization, they sort of live, give away some of that self-control mm-hmm. and they wait for the organization to make decisions on their behalf or their leaders or their peers to make decisions on their behalf or, you know, the, the, those perceptions kind of come, come and influence them. But I think we need to take that control back because, you know, without it, you're not leading. That's the first thing. You're letting other people tell you about, you know, whether you're a leader or not a leader or a good leader or a bad leader or, you know, whatever it might be. And so um, so that's one thing is that we cannot kind of abdicate our responsibility for that personal control and choice. You know, we can't give it to our leader. We can't give it to uh, or we shouldn't give it to our leader. We shouldn't give it to the organisation Um, we should actually take it back because when you take it back, Mm -hmm. wow, it feels really good, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that you are actually in control. Well, you know, it's it's, it's so funny that we're talking about this today because I was rifling through my backpack, which I don't use anymore, right, because I'm not, you know, going going into work. And and I had scribbled down on there like a couple notes. I I did sort of an exercise um, ages ago when I was struggling with some things career-wise. And I saw a note that basically said to a note to myself to say, talk to your manager about such and such thing that you want to do, right? Because I am like the poster boy for like leadership passivity or career passivity. You know, it's like, oh, what do you need me to do? You know, I'll do it, you know, kind of thing like that. Not really a great modeling. Um, but I remember thinking when I wrote that, I was like, mm, can I really do that? Like, like, can I actually just tell my boss like this is what I want to do. And I did it. And then many years later, I realized, wait a second, it didn't happen right away. It wasn't like they opened the door and said, oh, here's your prize. (laughs) But eventually I got there and I was doing what I asked for before. But to your point about being in control, like that all happened because I took some steps to communicate what I wanted where I didn't even realize I could do that. It was, it was, it's just crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, and then and then the opportunity comes. If you if you don't um take those steps, don't make those choices, don't take that action, then the opportunity is less likely mm-hmm. to come. 
And yeah. so, you know, if something's important to you, then, you know, take, take control of that. Absolutely. Now, one of the um, favorite uh, things in the book, and I'm, I'm a sucker for a good uh, acronym, um, and I love this, uh, this whole concept of being above or below the line. And you have two acronyms. One is OR, O-A-R, for above. And the other one is below, B, uh, or bed for below, B-E-D. Um, so mm. OR is above and bed is below. Um, mm. So can you walk the audience through a little bit of how that all fits together? I, I really enjoyed this. Yes, sure. Um, look, it, it's it's a re- pretty well-known concept above the line and below the line. And it's really, I guess what you would describe it is, is, is sort of your, your state of mind, your state of being, your level of resourcefulness. So when you're, when you're above the line, you're accessing all of your resources, you're feeling, you know, empowered, that you have influence, um, you know, you're really supporting yourself well. When you're operating below the line, you're less of lots of those things. So you're less resourceful. You're not supporting yourself as well. You don't have access to all of your, I guess, great attributes and decision-making and, and things like that. And so some of the differences that you might notice when someone's operating above the line, they're very happy to kind of step in and take ownership of things. And, and so they use a lot of like I language. I'll find out. I'll get it done. I'll make it happen. I can go and do that. And so they really put themselves in the situation where they feel like, you know, they can make a difference. With people who are operating below the line, and what I should also say is, look, we all go below the line. Leadership is about how quickly we pop ourselves back above the line. But when we're operating below the line, you might hear statements like, it's the policy, management said so so there's a kind of distance it's not not really me it's them or the way just the way it happens um and so we we hear that and the other thing that happens when people spend a bit of time below the line is that you might hear and see um some of the 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 less supportive emotions so um sort of annoyance and frustration and sarcasm and and sometimes anger can show up if people have been living there um a little bit too long And so how I help to explain those concepts is when you're above the line, you're sort of taking control. And so I use the the idea of the oar. So you're taking the oar, you're in control, you know, you're steering your own boat or canoe. Um, And so oar stands for, O is for ownership, you take ownership. A is for accountability. So you really step up to take accountability. And R is for responsibility. And so people who are above the line take the oar. So they have ownership, accountability, responsibility. Um, and people who are, whether temporarily or a bit longer term, operating below the line, it can, if you stay there for a long time, kind of become a bit of a victim state. You know, things mm-hmm. are done to me. I don't have control. I don't feel like I have control. Um, and so that's sort of like lying in bed, you know, just waiting for everything to happen. And so B is for blame, mm-hmm. E is for excuse. And D is for denial. So there's some of the things that we notice um, in people who are operating below the line. And so we don't want to be lying in bed too long. We really want to get back up to where we have some control and take and take the oar. Yeah, I, I love that. It's it's kind of like the difference between like venting and just commiserating versus getting stuck in this vicious loop of just mm. blame and accusation. And mm. sort of, it's very disempowering. It, it look it absolutely is and if I was to describe that so some people will say oh I'm not like that and you know that that's not me I don't feel like that 
Um, and they may not, and they may not recognize it, but then the question would be, so how much control do you feel like you have at the moment? How much influence do you feel like you've got at the moment? And that's when it becomes clear that they don't feel perhaps that they do have influence or control over a situation or, you know, um, and, and so that then becomes an opportunity to help them take a little bit more control to feel like, yes, I can make a bit of a difference in this situation. And get now, I know this book is about leading yourself, mm. um, but I wanted to share an observation that sometimes leaders have an opportunity to help their people be above the line, but mm. in the way the leader reacts, it, it, it almost, not forces, but it makes it harder for people to um, feel empowered because their boss is micromanaging or mm -hmm. constantly criticizing or, you know, so it's kind of like, and then, and then if you complain, like, why aren't my people more proactive or empowered? It's, it's like, there are no mirrors for them to yes. see like, well, maybe the problem is, is how you're yes. treating everyone. Not the fact that people don't have motivation. Have you, yes. have you encountered that? Uh, I, I do see that. Um, more often than I would like. And so um, you just said exactly the, the thing, you know, leaders at all levels have must hold the mirror up. Mm -hmm. You need to have a look. Some of it will be good and some of it will be uncomfortable and some of it will probably be a little bit ugly. <laughs> and that's okay because it's just information. And then when we've got information, then we can make choices about that information. You know, we keep what we like. We do something about the things that are uncomfortable and perhaps we really need to change some of the, the ugly or the bad. Um, yeah. And But it comes back to, you know, taking responsibility for self, you know, yeah. hence the book. And so holding the mirror up is a fundamental part of being able to first lead yourself. And if you, you know, one of the things that I do talk to uh, a lot of the people that I, that I not a lot, to some of the people that I work with is, as you said, if the people around you are perhaps not responding the way you want them to, if they're not stepping up the way you want them to, they're not contributing the way that you want them to, what's, what's, the, what's the one consistent element if it's all your team? Like, you, you, <laughs> you, you, like you know, so maybe it's time to actually not look at them. Maybe it's time to look at you and go, okay, so what can I do to help the situation? What can I do that might be impacting on them? So I need to have a look at myself first. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of funny, Stacey. Every company I go to, they're all the same. They all treat me the same way. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> um, so another uh, concept that you talk about is the importance of, of self-belief or, or mojo. And, and I always love any excuse to bring up Austin Powers. Um, but talk to us a little bit about how that fits into leading yourself and being able to lead others, you know, this importance of, of that self-belief. Yeah, I think... I think it is important. Um, and again, this comes back to, I think, you know, some of the, the, the earlier comments around, you know, being authentic and genuine. If you um, are struggling to find your self-belief around your own leadership, then that is, there's a chance that others will also struggle to believe in you as a leader. And so, you know, you have a responsibility for yourself, but also to the people you're leading to, to find your self-belief. Um, and there's lots of ways to do that. And I've given a few ideas in the book about how, how to actually, 
you know, support your own self-belief, build your self-belief, you know, recognise that you don't need to be a perfect leader to be a good leader um, and, an, and, and um, um, an, an evolving leader, if you like. Um, and so I think, again, with all of this, you know, self comes first. You need to build that foundation, a solid foundation upon which to base your leadership um, and so your belief in yourself is a really integral part of that. If you don't believe in your leadership, why would others? And, and that's not a criticism. It's just a, it's just a question, you know. So, so if you want to have that, that um, influence and, and be someone, you know, that other people could learn from or choose to follow, then, then dig deep and, and look at what you have to offer because everybody has amazing attributes and, and amazing experiences and wisdom to offer and share, you know, with their, with their tribe of people. And so it's about discovering that for yourself as a way of actually building your self-belief. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think it's so important. And I think um, what some people uh, may not realize is a lot of behaviors of leaders that we may find um, harmful um, or destructive or toxic, however you want to describe it, um, often they can stem from sort of that fear or lack of, I see you nodding, or lack of belief in yourself. So nothing that I say or do or to please you is going to change that because you don't believe in yourself. So you're going to continue to treat others in a way that is how you figure it out to protect yourself or if that makes sense. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I think, you know, insecurity or fear or low levels of confidence or imposter syndrome, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. all of those things can be factors in, you know, the behaviour that we see um, in action. And so um, I think the, the challenge then is if you're in the team and it's the leader who's demonstrating some of those things, what, what can you do? And I, and I think one of the big things is be kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be kind because because the challenge is actually theirs um yeah. and so um you know if you get the opportunity to to offer them support and help and you know um so that they can start to do that discovery or get some help to do that discovery so yeah. they can find that self-belief then that's amazing but i think also just remember that it's not about it's not about you it it, yeah. it is actually about them and that's okay yeah yeah absolutely um so another concept that you bring up, um, which I love to talk about, I, I know um, a lot of people are not such huge fans of this, but uh, the concept of being in the moment, you know, being present, um, what does that mean to you in terms of, you know, leading yourself and, and leading others? Yeah, I, look, I think for me, it's, it's, it's pretty simple, really. If you're not in the moment, Mm -hmm. then you're not part of what's going on. And if you're not part of what's going on, then you're not leading in its simplest form. Mm -hmm. And so being present, um, and I guess for me, I, I was probably, you know, in, in the sceptical phase a few years ago, but I think being present is just being really conscious of where you're putting your attention mm -hmm. and how you're showing up, mm -hmm. you know, into whatever it is that you're doing. So um, it doesn't mean that you have to meditate your way through the day or any of those sorts of things. It's, it's just about being really conscious about where you're putting your attention and energy and effort and focus and 
And I think as leaders, you know, we, we are a limited resource. There are only so many hours in the day. There's only so many productive hours in the day. We've only got so much energy. And so we need to be really wise about um, where, where we are being present, you know, and in what moments and, and choose them wisely, but then actually max, maximise or optimise that opportunity each and every time. Hmm. I love that. I love that. And, you know, I, I train in Aikido, which is a Japanese martial art and requires you to be kind of relaxed and kind of fluid. And that's one challenge that a lot of practitioners have, like the instructor will be like, relax. And as soon as they say relax, you like tighten up, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, like I would struggle so long with like, how do you try to relax? It's almost like an, like a paradox. You can't try to relax, right? It, Mm. It has to be something that happens. And I had an epiphany, like, unfortunately it was like right before COVID. So I didn't really get to practice this much, but what I realized is relaxing is kind of also being in the moment and being present because what would happen is I'd be on the mat. I'd be doing a technique. I'm supposed to relax and think about exactly what's happening in the millisecond as it happens, where my body Mm -hmm. is, what I'm feeling, what what the other person is doing. Instead, what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about, am I doing this right? Mm. Is my teacher going to be upset with me or pleased with me? Am I, how, mm. What am I going to have for dinner tonight? Am I going to get hurt? I'm thinking mm. about anything and everything except what's the most important thing, which is a fist is coming towards my face or you know, <laughs> something, whatever the technique happens to be. And that really resonated with me. It's, it's, and, and what you were saying, it was kind of like the same thing. It's like, are you paying attention to the thing that you need to be paying attention to right now? Or are you worried about your 401k or you got in a fight with your partner before you came to work and and you're not listening to what your people are trying to tell you? Yeah, I think, and I think um, one of the things that I learned when I, when I um, studied embraining is that it's the calm. So, so I actually don't use the word relax and, and I don't study martial arts either. So, <laughs> so I don't take anything there, but, but it's about the calm. It's like the center of calm mm. because relax for me, relax is like fall asleep. Right. Um, and, you know, whereas calm is like find your center, mm-hmm. you know, where, where, where you can just be still and notice and yes. be part of what's happening. Yeah. Um, and again, there's lots of techniques to help you help you do that. And I share a couple, uh, or certainly one, um, around breathe, breathing in the in the book to help you find that calm center. And I think, um, yeah, it, it is. It's just find that that place that allows you to just, you know, contribute to whatever it is that you're doing. And the contribution could be silence. It could just be listening. It could be appreciating what's going on, or it could be very active. Whatever is the most important thing for you to be doing as being present in that moment. I struggle with that, but that's so true. Sometimes the (laughs) best thing to do is not to say something like by not contributing, you're actually creating a better environment. Mm. But I think a lot of leaders feel like, Oh, I'm the leader. I have to say something, but you actually end up sort of squashing, um, you know, the energy for lack of a better word. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's one of the most powerful things that leaders can do is to listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, one last concept I would love to um, cover with you in the time we have remaining. Um, you talk about decision-making integration and the concept mm. of your head, 
your heart, and your gut, and how they're all important and how they kind of dovetail and, and fit mm. into each other. Although I think a lot of people, we try to segment, right? Like a lot of people mm. are like, oh, I just use my head or I just use my gut. So talk mm. to us a little bit about why that's important and, and how understanding that can help us make better decisions and lead better. Yeah, there's there's a lot of research in this space. It's it's really interesting. Um, I think you know if we if we look 40, 50, 60 years ago, particularly in the business world, um, decision making and um, and leadership was very head based. You know, you left your personality at the door, your emotions at the door, and all that sort of thing, and you brought your head resources to work. But because of that, you you don't bring your whole self. And so you miss out on all of the other amazing resources that you have. And so the idea of integrating all of your neural network, all of your resources through your head, heart and gut is just about exactly that, getting you more resources to lead with. Um, And so if I give you an example, you know, we've all had um, the situation where, We've been going, we wanted to do something that maybe is a little bit out of our comfort zone, might have a bit of risk to it, and we get the swirly kind of tummy thing going on, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which can get really serious. You know, it could be kind of turned into nausea or something. But um, that that's just our body giving us information to work with. Like this could be dangerous for us. This could mm-hmm. be a risk. Watch out, you know, be careful. Um, and that's really valid information. And so... Um, we want to tap into that. Same with our heart, which is kind of our, I guess, our emotional center. But the other thing that's really important is its connection to community, which as a leader is like connection to your tribe and um, the values. We hold our values, what's important um, in our heart. And so, again, super valuable um, information. And, and if you look at, and again, I'm not an expert in this area, but if you look at a lot of Eastern philosophy, of course, this is very aligned to a lot of ancient wisdoms. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we've got the science to kind of prove it. But let me give you a work example. Mm-hmm. I, uh, again, a few years ago, was renegotiating a, as part of my work, a really big printing contract, like $30, $40 million contract. Mm-hmm. And we had had a provider for a number of years and they'd been amazing. They'd always delivered. And so they were one of the tenders. And then we had a couple of other tender options. And my team, I was being a really great leader and I was delegating my team, you go and choose who is the right provider for us going forward. Um, And they came back with a recommendation on paper. It looked amazing and I could see why they wanted to do it. And I just felt a little bit nervous about it. Mm -hmm. So we got a presentation and the vendor came in and they presented and, you know, it was a good presentation, but I, I still wasn't overly comfortable but I wanted to trust my team. And so um, they said, we believe this is the right, this is all the reasons why. And I went, okay. So the contract came and it sat on my desk for like, I don't know, three weeks. And I just couldn't bring, my, I couldn't bring myself to sign it. Okay. And eventually like a delegation from my team came in and said, like, you've got to sign this contract. <laughs> and I was literally, I was looking down and this, the contract, it was paper contract, sitting on my desk, uh-huh. my pen was next to it. And one of my team members put the pen in my hand. I'm like, I don't want to do this. I just, uh-huh. I feel really uncomfortable. Anyway, so I signed the contract. Uh-huh. It was a disaster. Oh, like it was wow. just a disaster. Um they, the values fit between the two organisations just wasn't there. 
And so what was important to us and what was important to them, it just wasn't there. And so that was the whole way through. It was my intuition going, don't do it, don't do it. It's not going to work. And I did it and I paid for it ever since. So I reckon we've all had those kind of scenarios where, you know, you've done something and you thought, I really, it just isn't right, but you can't actually articulate what isn't right about it. And so if you can start to tap into some of this wisdom, this intuition that comes from your heart and your gut, if you learn how to do that, you you get more information and you use that information in your decision-making. And as I said, there's a whole lot of research that actually shows the elevation of the quality of the decision-making process um, of the combination of knowledge and experience with intuition Mm -hmm. versus just using, you know, the head-brain knowledge piece. Yeah, I'm a I, I'm right there with you, Stacey. I'm a big believer in like not discarding that information. It, it just like your head, it shouldn't control you, but it should inform. To use your words, it should inform your decision making. Mm. Why would you? Why would you? It, it's kind of like someone gives you a report and you rip out like a third of the pages. Like why would you do that? Mm. Like you should read the mm. entire report. <laughs> yeah. Look, absolutely. And so I think if you can learn to to gather that information because for a lot of people, you know, we haven't been taught how to do that. In fact, we've been mm-hmm. taught how not to do that. Like don't exactly. pay attention to that. Just use your, just use your head brain. <laughs> and so we miss out. So if we can learn to tap into that, we, you know, we, we're just, we're resourcing ourselves. We're getting more information. And so you're just placing yourself in a much better situation to make better decisions. I mean, Stacey, how many times have uh, have you or, or or other women in the audience heard like, you know, let's not get emotional about this, or yeah. you're you're getting emotional, right? It's it's like even in some of the language, even if people don't, well, maybe they mean it that way, but even if they don't mean it that way, like like the language, the business language we have around it kind of puts emotion down and puts yeah. Yeah, and it, and it's yeah. sad because because emotions are part of us, and so there are emotions that support us. There are emotions that don't support us. So what we need to learn to do is to get into the space where our emotions are actually supporting us and useful, um, and and we don't ignore them because if we ignore them, again, we're missing out, you know, on valuable information you know if we're responding in a particular way, what's behind that? Let's understand that because that gives us good information. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Stacey, I really enjoyed reading your book and this conversation. Fantastic. I learned so much from you. Again, um, tell us a little bit about where people can find out more about you, get the book, get in touch with you. Um, What's the best way for people to connect? Um, Okay, so a couple of really simple ways. So my website website is um, stacyashley.com. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn and so um, sharing stuff on LinkedIn. So please reach out and, and follow me there. And um, alternative to the website in terms of getting the book is to jump on Amazon. Perfect. All right. Excellent. First Lead Yourself by Stacey Ashley. Uh, thank you, Stacey, for sharing these amazing insights with us on why it works. Thank you so much, Joe. I've enjoyed sharing about the book and speaking with you again. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear more from you in the future. If you enjoyed this show and others, I have a favor to ask. I've just released my YouTube series, The Charisma Chronicles. I need 100 subscribers to be eligible for a custom URL that is easier for you to use and remember. I'm about 25% there. 
after you stop listening, please go to YouTube, type Charisma Chronicles, and subscribe to my channel. That's it. If you want, you can even watch an episode to learn how to really get more charisma. Useful for holiday parties and family get-togethers. As always, thank you for your support. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joquan Joe Coaching, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit joquanjo.com. And stay tuned for our next Why It Works adventure.